0: now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolfe with very special guest Wale Talabi on the Coot Street Podcast.
1: And welcome, Wale, and congratulations. Congratulations twice. Congratulations on a Hugo nomination and on on, on your new novel, which I guess is Shigiri. Okay, let me see how I'm getting this right. Shigiri and the Brass Head of a That's very good.
2: Yes, yes, and thank you. Thank you for the <laughs> double. Congratulations, double thank
0: you. Well, yes, because, I mean, Shadidi's just out in the world, isn't it? It's it's a week old? Yeah, about five days, Tuesday. Well,
2: technically Wednesday, my time, Tuesday, US time, because, you know, time zone magic. But, yes, Mm -hmm. about five days.
0: So so how has the journey been, you know, from sort of, you know, uh, someone who wants to become a writer to someone who has had some short fiction out, edited anthologies to now? A debut novelist. Uh, long <laughs> and, <laughs> and difficult. Well, not, not that difficult. I think. Um, it's
2: been interesting because I think if you go back maybe 20 years and talked to you know the teenage version of me, this would probably not be something that that you know that version of me wanted. I I, I wanted to be I wanted to be a film director. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what Kind of my, that was one of like my, my dreams as a teenager. I used to love independent movies and cinema and I would try to watch everything. At some point, like, um, I was kind of known as the movie guy. You could show me almost any movie, like show five minutes of it. And I'll tell you the title and who was in it and who the director was. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was a thing. Um, not anymore. Um, <laughs>
1: oh, well, before you say not anymore, you have just completely explained the opening scene of Shigiri, which is the most movie-ready opening I've read in a novel this year. Yes. Yeah.
2: People have described scenes in the novel as a bit cinematic, which, yes, I I, I leaned in a little bit, you know, into my, like, movie director. Like, okay, it's my debut novel. I'm going mm-hmm. to write it as a novel, but I'm going to visualize it like I were visualizing a movie.
0: Sure. Oh. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, it's a terrible noise. I'll have to edit that out. So, wh- wh- where did where did you first find Shigiri and you know the story that you've got? Because it seems to me that it dates back forward. Of, you know, it dates back in time some 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 way. So yeah. I'm kind of interested to know exactly sort of where where you found the story.
2: Well. Three, three separate places. So the story kind of came at me from three angles. The story that became came at me from three separate angles. Um, the first one was the character of Shigidi um, himself. Now, yeah. Shigidi, I mean, you've, you've both read the book, I think. Shigidi is, is basically a nightmare god in the yeah. in Yoruba mythology. Religion. It's still an active religion, but I'm taking inspiration um, from the mythological elements of it. Yeah. And Shigidi is basically a nightmare. Of, and yeah. there are typically the way Shigidi is worshipped is people make these like tiny um, statues, either of mud or wood. And it, the design, it's meant to be ugly and a bit terrifying. And it's supposed to either catch nightmares that your enemies send to you. So you put it in your house or in the corner of your bedroom. And it's supposed to catch and prevent nightmares, or you can send it right. If you pray to it, you could send it basically to give your enemies nightmares,
1: yeah.
2: um, and basically you know induce sleep paralysis and stuff. So I've I've come across you know statues of Shigidi before back when I was living in Nigeria. I've read about Shigidi. I've always found it to be you know one of these weird deities. Yeah. And at some point back in 2016, when I was in Nigeria for Christmas, I just thought like like the Yoruba Pantheon is full of these larger than life characters. And here's Shigidi, this tiny poor creature whose job it is to get give nightmares. He must have the worst job in the world. <laughs> right? And then it started unspooling in my head and I was like, oh yeah, it's the worst job in the world. It's like, you know, the equivalent of basically being in a working in a terrible corporation. And then I started imagining the entire Yoruba pantheon as a corporation, like who would be the CEO and who would be like the chairman emeritus. And actually, a lot of the gods' personalities do kind of fit into that like corporate archetype stereotype. So I was like, okay, there's something here actually um, in that concept. I I like a good metaphor as well. So to me, it seemed like a good metaphor to play with, with like the gods as like a corporate entity and one of them having a particularly terrible job. So that was the first. Thing that came. Second element was the co-protagonist, basically, who's N- Norma. Norma is an interesting character that kind of just popped into my head one day. Right, I, st- I just started writing a story about a woman who meets a man in a bar, and turns out she's a succubus, and she sleeps with him and takes his soul, and she's but she's conflicted about it, and she, in the story, I allude to a lot. More history but at that time even i didn't know what that history was i just knew she was an ancient creature and had this complex internal life and it was only later that i started unpacking it and realizing where that came from and basically um growing up in nigeria you, there was a lot of like christian um influenced messaging about you know women and sexuality being a sure, sure. terrible thing right like, you have to be careful because if you go out, there's these, you know, temptresses of the night that will, you know, flash you their thigh and tempt you away from your good Christian wife and sleep with you and then damn you to hell or whatever. All oh, their spirits in disguise. And there were lots of movies that came out, like Nigerian movies. Nollywood loves this thing. Uh, okay. um, lots of these movies came out in the 90s and 2000s of these kinds of women, right? There's a very famous one called Nekka, the pretty serpent, yeah. who which I actually took an inspiration for, for Noma from, right? Necker and Noma, the names are kind of, you know, um, similar. Yep. And basically I wanted to take that kind of character and invert it a little bit, like do something more interesting with it. Um, not the stereotypical, you know, just, oh, you know, it's just a temptress that's going to tempt you for tempting sake. Like it's just evil with no rationale and no, no yep. life it i wanted to give you know some more depth to the character so i started writing more about Noma, and then yeah. the two of them seemed like they would make a good pair like nightmare god who gives people nightmares at night while they're sleeping succubus who sleeps with people and steals their soul like at some point they could meet each other which happens in the book right so i yeah. i wrote a short story um called aishigidi which in which that happens and it some of that story makes its way into the book it's one of the of
0: course yeah, it's one of
2: the scenes in the book. And then the final element that kind of sealed what became this novel was um, back in 2018, when I went to the King Prize ceremony in London, I uh, I went to the British Museum. And I had yep. been to the museum before because I used to live in London. But going back at that point, maybe it was just you know my state of mind at the time, I just felt deeply uncomfortable with everything. Um, yeah. I did not enjoy that museum visit at all. and. It just felt like seeing prisoners of war a bit. It's like yeah. someone was taking me on a tour of a prison. And, you know, I just kept thinking, like, I would like to just break everything and, you know, take them back to where they belong, or at least ask the people that have the strongest cultural ties to all these things, like, do you want this to be here? Do you want to keep it, like, take it back? And so that kind of feeling, you know, I knew I was going to write a story about the Heist at the British Museum because that was the feeling I had. But then I thought, oh, actually, make it a supernatural one. And of course, Noma and Shigidi, because I love writing about those characters. Yeah. So that, th- those three things, it's like I wanted to write a story about the heist. I wanted to write about Shigidi and Noma. Put it all together, and that eventually became the, the idea for the novel.
0: And then you're sort of given a structure in a way that comes almost out of classic urban fantasy or whatever else. You know, it's not, in a sense, unlike books like Rivers of London and that kind of thing, though different ideas, different whatever, but that basic kind of structure. So was that something that you also were interested in and familiar with and re- read a lot, or was it just one of those things that happened?
2: Um, it's something I'm familiar with. I I do say contemporary and urban fantasy is my favourite type of fantasy. I yep. mean, I, I enjoy epic fantasy, but it's not really you know my personal favorite and if i had to if i had to choose like a type of fantasy story that i would enjoy i would most likely pick like an urban family. um so i had read things you know like the dresden files uh um, sure of course some of the gamers were well, neverware and american gods obviously which has some influence on the book i'm a, I'm a big you know new game Man fan i hadn't read extensively like i'm Shame to admit, I still haven't read Griffiths of London, even though many people have recommended it to me. And Ben Aronovich actually came to Lagos himself, (laughs) talked to people, and I was there at the same time, and I didn't even get the book. It was it was a hectic time but the some of the archetypes of urban fantasy were you know familiar to me some of the tropes and the the whole idea of almost like a you know crime fiction mixed with supernatural elements that was very yeah. familiar to me and that was very deliberately something I wanted to I wanted to lean into
1: there, there's also a kind of contest between uh, magics because you do have the the Yorba pantheon versus the British, I forget the name of the British organization that is protecting uh, the uh, British Museum, which is the involved British in Spirit kind of Spirit the, Bureau. Yes, uh, the British Spirit Bureau, which seems to derive its idea of magic from, from Alistair Crowley, who just, uh, I, I've noticed this uh, this year, he's thrown up in, shown up in like three or four fantasy novels so far this year, and he always is kind of a buffoon. And so there is this sense, but well, he he's clearly in over his head in the one uh, sequence in which he meets Noma. Um, was that a deliberate kind of cultural, it's, it's, it's a kind of, I guess, way using religious themes to address the plundering that goes on in the British British Museum with artifacts. Um, so, yeah. uh, which also is, explains how these bronze horses are chasing a black cab down the streets of London in the opening scene. Yeah.
2: Um, some, some element of that was deliberate. Some of it was me just, you know, having fun with concepts and like trying to put in as much mythology mm-hmm. and, you know, folklore from different parts of the world as I could. Um, but the element of having a uh, Yoruba, a minor Yoruba de- deity verse, and a succubus going up against the British mm-hmm. trade Bureau who are very bureaucratic and have yes. lots of rules and regulations about... Who is allowed to enter the country and how and which spirit entities can operate there um a lot of that is very deliberate because of course i have dealt a lot with the british government as you know <laughs> a for, a foreigner a foreigner living in, in the uk I, I lived there for about three years
1: um so a lot of that was deliberate and i, I also I, wanted to uh, uh, I, i'm just gonna say i thought i Caught a few undertones of brexit attitudes among the British music, ma- magicians yes yeah there's this um, there tends to be a lot of pride um, in what
2: the British Empire used to be that's carried mm-hmm. over into the present even though it doesn't reflect present reality um, and I wanted to you know show some of that in some of the sequences and in some of the mm-hmm. the way things are represented I don't really have too many you know, characters from the British Spirit Bureau make an appearance. They're more referenced in the background. Um, But I just wanted to allude to some of those themes.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that we haven't mentioned uh, that I was, I don't know why I was surprised is just how funny the novel is in Uh, in that sense. And and you're right, the Yoruba gods seem to have, um, seem to be better organized in terms of their power, but they're pretty disorganized as a group as well. Um, I mean, it's, and the idea of making fun of squabbling gods is, I don't know if that's traditional in Nigerian mythology. It's certainly traditional in uh, classical Greek mythology. I mean, Aristophanes has gods squabbling among themselves. Um, But you wonder, I guess you have to wonder how do they get anything done uh, with this bureaucracy they've got set up on these rules and people grabbing for power within the power structure. I think I said in my review, sometimes they act like a corporate uh, international corporation. Sometimes they act like a convoluted bureaucracy and sometimes they act like gangsters. Um,
2: yeah. Which, which represents people in the end, right? Like the gods are just our, you know, exaggerated imaginations of different aspects of ourselves. Um, That's also something I try to get at, you know, a bit in the book is the concept of belief itself and where the gods come from. Um, They, they are in essence, they are. um, And of course we will criticize them the way we criticize ourselves and make fun of Mm. them. And they have all these elements that we have, which is this greed and need for power, but also you know, an aspiration to be more organized and to get things done efficiently. So it's all these conflicting elements that you would find with any, you know, group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and having worked in, you know, the corporate world myself for what, mm-hmm. 14, 15 years now, I've seen a lot of this. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I'm sure. You know, we, 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 people love to talk about capitalist systems and, you know, people being, rational economic actors not even close um (laughs) not even close customers and you know the um the people that manage corporations they're subject to all the same human whims and problems as any other group of people people are greedy people want to be seen in a better light than other people some people want to be just want a quiet life and don't want anyone to bug them and they just want to do their job and go home and have a drink and you know you have all these personalities all trying to come together to form one thing with one general objective in the novel you know it's to generate enough belief and faith to keep themselves going
1: and and, and that's another that's another theme i think is Uh, very strong, is is the notion that belief, they need belief to survive. I mean, when people stop believing in them, they go away. And there was, and so they're trying to modernize. There was one bit, and since you mentioned you're a Neil Gaiman fan, I'll see if I'm right about that. There was one detail that I thought was a direct homage to American gods, and that is when the uh, Yoruba Pantheon decides they're going to tear down the evil forest and replace it with a shrine to cinema like okay the old evils don't work anymore so let's let's set up a movie theater yeah yeah that that's that's that's
2: a scene or that that's a part that i wrote you know where Shigidi is going to work and he basically sees like a notice that this is happening they're tearing down the forest and that yes was a direct reference to you know some of the themes in american gods of the new gods replacing the the old and it's all entertainment and
1: you know, right yeah. Marilyn Monroe instead of Warren yeah. and that sort a- of
0: yes. Do you feel that your uh, time you know, paying attention to cinema to focusing on it to wanting to be wanting to be a director had a greater influence on the book than your reading or you know is is there a a, a direct line from your reading to this? So I I think probably
2: and this for this particular book is probably more influenced by my interest in cinema, yeah. uh, because of course the the heist, the idea of a heist um, is something that's very common in movies. And in yeah. preparation for this, when I was, you know, getting ready to write it or like thinking about it, I basically rewatched a lot of like my classic, you know, my favorite sure. classic heist movies, everything from, you know, Rafifi, Ocean's Eleven, ah. you know, just to kind of, again, remind myself of, the sense of what makes the heist movie a heist movie. And then I, do, I don't want to take any specific beats, but I wanted to have sure. that general reference in my head. You have to have a planning scene. You have to have a car chase scene. You have to have a, right. an escape, an escape that goes wrong. All of those elements. But then I wanted to play with it. So a lot of my preparation for this was you know, rewatching a lot of movies I had seen when I was younger. Um, not that much per se. Yeah. Um, a lot of the reading I did was actual research in like checking because there's also a lot of historical references in the book. Um, Almost every scene that takes place in the past is based on something that actually happened which I've extrapolated um, Mm -hmm. was twisted into a fantastical version of what actually happened but there was a lot of historical research and a lot of you know film based thinking about how I wanted to work. I very much imagined the story taking place as a movie Mm -hmm. with you know, action scenes and you know different set pieces and different locations and all that. So yeah, in terms, it's it's quite different from the way I usually write. My short fiction usually comes from a very different angle. Um,
0: well, actually, that sort of ties in because this is sort of, I mean, quite often for a de- for a debut novelist, that first novel, and I don't know if this is the first you attempted, but the first novel is that sort of leap into this vast, long thing you're going to you know go to write because maybe you've only ever written something that's five, six, eight thousand words long and it's quite containable and you can see it and imagine the single piece. Whereas the novel is this sort of like, I'm doing a thing. So how, how daunting was that? Or did having that heist, not heist movie structure kind of give you what you needed to piece the whole thing together for the first time? Well,
2: so I'm simplifying the story of how the novel came about, because it's a bit more complicated mm-hmm. than what I Implied, which is you know this simple linear story of yes, I had three concepts, I put them together, and then boom, novel. Um, not quite. If again, I, if you had spoken to me a few years ago, I actually had talked to you know friends, people like Tade Thompson. I had told them like I'm never going to write a novel. Um, I'm only going to do short fiction because I like short fiction. It's fun. It works for me. And the advice I always got is you you'll change your mind eventually. Just keep writing, and usually. So the way I came to this novel was basically. The original idea was to write four separate novellas, yeah. um, and the the story of the heist was meant to be a novella um, mm-hmm. originally. And then I started writing it, and I just I enjoyed myself mm-hmm. so much it became the full novel. Um, it it expanded much more than that original idea mm-hmm. for for just that single one novella because i had this idea of you know shigiri and noma on different adventures one of them being Mm -hmm. the height um and then as i started to write it i realized actually there's enough material here and i'm enjoying writing it and my approach to writing it was almost i treated each scene almost like a separate short story
0: Mm -hmm.
2: um, with the heist being a framing device Mm -hmm. to put Mm -hmm. the whole Mm -hmm. thing
0: A couple
1: of the flashbacks, uh, the ones involving Crowley, for example, work pretty much as stories by themselves.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think,
1: I think they do. In fact, I think one of that particular one,
2: um, at some point, my idea was to kind of publish it, you know, by itself as like a teaser for the novel, but nah, people can just get the novel and just enjoy it Um, from beginning to end. So yeah, it it did start off as an idea for shorter stories. So I never really had that point. Um, where I had this big project in front of me and I was really kind of like, oh, I'm good to write and no- I'm doing the novel now. It was just really, well, I'm writing a story, which you be a number heist and I just kept writing and it just continued
1: to expand until, well, I guess we have a novel now. Um, so, yeah. Is it true? I'm just thinking aloud now that when you mention heist movie, everybody knows what a heist movie is. And it seems to me that that's a, subgenre of movies much more than it's a subgenre of novels. There are heist novels uh, and there are some famous heist novels and there are some by, you know, good, but, but it's not a thing the way it is in movies. And when you think heist, I think almost all of us think of of, of the classic movies, the oceans 11 kinds of things. Italian job. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I I think, I think it's much, it's much more associated with, with movies as, as you, because I, I think you can have novels that have heists in them, but I think it would be difficult to sell the concept of a novel as, oh, it's a heist novel, because I think a lot of what makes a heist kind of thrilling and interesting is um, a lot of it has to do with, with the way the way it's portrayed, right? Mm-hmm. There is this idea of you're going somewhere, which is a difficult location, and you know, there's probably traps and there's a lot of, you know, difficulties that you need to overcome and obstacles and all the things. I feel like sometimes it works best when you visualize that. So the way I wrote the novel is I've put as much description as possible. Mm -hmm. Like I make it very vivid and descriptive to capture that sense of, you know, cinema almost, um, but also a sense of playfulness. So it's not impossible um, to do a heist novel, like you said, but for some reason, yeah, I think it, it it's more a cinematic medium um, or it's more associated with the cinematic medium.
1: Well, I mean, the other, the other cinematic element that I note, well, it's not necessarily a cinematic element originally, but it works that way, is the dialogue. There's a lot of hard-boiled dialogue going on in this. There's a lot of sexy dialogue going on. But the back-and-forth between Shigidi and Noma is, uh, you're right, we, we want to see more of them interacting, I think. But uh, but a lot of the uh, complaining of the various gods uh, are... are it, it, a lot of this has a wisecracking kind of um, affect that you get in... Uh, I don't know, it, it, you mentioned Ocean's Eleven, and i you made me think of Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. and that whole crew... Uh, just constantly one-upping one another. And there's a lot of wit in the dialogue here. Well, thank you. And I I tried to capture that.
2: It's also very Nigerian. If you've ever, you know, come across a group of Nigerians having a friendly discussion, it sounds like they're about to attack each other. Uh, There's a lot of like quick one-liners and shouting and then suddenly the volume changes and then somebody goes off and everybody else, you know, joins and starts nodding and like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, 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 good point, good point. And then it becomes, it's almost like verbal, it's like it's like verbal combat. Um, it's almost the way we have fun, lively discussions. It's very, you know, it's about being quick-witted, about sharp, about making quick cutting remarks, something that captures people's attention, makes everybody else go, ooh, and, you know, that kind of thing. So I tried to capture that vibe as well. Um, I also tried to put in as much like, you know, pigeon English, some of the local slang that people would use to make it feel more, I mean of course Yoruba gods would be speaking Yoruba not, but and probably not even pidgin but still I wanted to give it enough of a Nigerian sensibility that people could also follow along.
0: Actually I mean how important was that to you to bring into this story? I mean obviously you, you've got this idea of you know the caper story you know, this classic kind of idea of a couple of characters who are going to you know, you know do a raid on somewhere like the British Museum and steal something valuable <laughs> fairly classic. But how important was it to have that sense of coming from Nigeria, of having the Yoruban U- mythology in it? Because it seems to me that that's something that I'm seeing more and more of right now, I'm reading a lot of work that has Yoruban Uro- mythology in it from, from here, from Suyi Davies, from Tade Thompson, from tobi Gundarin. It seems like that's a thing. How important was it to get that f- that sense and feeling into the story and to get it right?
2: So for me, it was it was basically essential. Um, I grew up reading a lot of mythology. Like my dad had a collection of encyclopedias. I used to spend hours in his study just reading, reading everything back to front. And I would read about you know Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, some Hindu mythology, and very little about you know African mythology because these were by and large British encyclopedias. Oh well, yeah. Right? Mm. And then as I became a teenager and, you know, more of a young adult in my 20s, I started reading and studying more about like Yoruba history and culture and mythology. And it is rich. There is so much history. There is so much about the the culture that is expressed in many different forms, the arts, the technology, the complex religious system um, that we use. And it's almost, it's barely spoken about, except you actually go to, you know, people that still practice the traditional ways, which there are some. Mm-hmm. But even within Nigeria, you don't come across them that easily anymore. Um, you know, the Christianity and Islam did a number on the <laughs> on the local traditional beliefs. But the more I've studied them, the more interested I have become. Um, you know, even just the folklore alone. Sure. I think I think some of the folklore is what survived the most and which is what you're seeing a lot of stories from is people taking that. But there's a lot much deeper. So I, I, I always wanted to use Yoruba mythology and the pantheon of Yoruba gods in particular um, to tell stories. And I, I try to actually put them a lot in as many stories as I can. So uh, if any, if you feel like it, if you go back to almost all my short stories, even the science fiction ones, whenever there's like a new concept or some technology, whenever I give it a name, the name is almost always a reference to the Yoruba
1: pantheon. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is, so is, there a, is there a delicate balance? You mentioned earlier in the discussion uh, that there are th- th- they're, they're still practicing Yoruba, who uh, regard this as a religion and not as a mythology. Is there a balancing act between treating something as a mythology and treating it as an active religion, I think so. Yeah, and it's something
2: I was quite aware of. I spoke with a few, you know, practitioners of um, Ifa, uh, a few friends as well that have family close to um, close to the religion. And basically, the approach that I, or the the framing I came up with, is this: you need to treat it a bit like um, combat, right? Because I enjoy a bit of kickboxing, boxing, all that kind of stuff. And we always say the worst place to be is in the middle space, right? Where you're close enough to your opponent that they can hit you, but you don't have enough space to move back quickly. So you're either all the way in or all the way out. You're either really close that anything they throw is, you know, it's wide out or you're far away that they're going to miss. And so that was, that was my approach with, with this as well. It's you're either all the way in or all the way out, which is you're either completely accurate or you make it very clear that you're not being accurate, and it's more of an insp- inspired by, ah, okay. as opposed to this is representing the actual religion. So I think some of that is why a bit, the novel is a bit funny. It's a bit irreverent in that sense, to make it clear that, you know, this is not the representation of the actual Yoruba girls. Like, no, if a practitioner is going to mistake my version of Shango for the actual Shango, right? It's inspired by, you know, some mm-hmm. of the, and the personalities that the um, that Shango is meant to have, but obviously, Shango is not the CEO of a company, right? It's yeah. um, not trying to kill the other gods.
1: So well, we, so- should, we should probably mention that in, in the novel, we do get glimpses of other pantheons, of other uh, mythologies, and they don't seem, those gods don't seem much better organized than the Yoruba gods are either. So basically, religion is. Um, well, it's an organizational problem, isn't it? I mean, how do you deal with gods that are competing for authority within what's becoming more and more like a corporate structure? Yeah, and it's again it's it's the same with people, right? Yeah. We we continuously
2: struggle to, you know, maintain corporations, nations, you know, social groups at every level there is disorganization. I mean, I don't know a single person that would not that would not complain about their local politics um, mm. or you know their local business leaders right or the way their com- the company they work for is being run right management is always messy opaque difficult to understand taking weird directions doing things that seem counterintuitive so i, I wanted all that to be reflected across all religions because i i think at the end of the day it's kind of all the same. Um, the details vary, but the foundation is the same.
0: I'm kind of curious. I mean, you're 10 years away from having lived in uh, Nigeria, at least 10 years from what you said today. To what extent do you feel part of the, the movement that we seem to be seeing right now, where a lot of writers from that part of, world, of the world are getting attention, the people we've mentioned already, uh, the people who you collected in, the African Futurism Anthology, a couple of years ago, how much do you feel part of that or how much of that is something that's happening over there while you're doing what you do?
2: I I think I'm very much part of it. Um, I feel very connected to it. A big part of that is the African Speculative Fiction Society, which we formed back in 2015-ish. And the whole idea behind that was to deliberately promote African Speculative Fiction you know, internationally support authors and writers still living on the continent, mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of that has borne fruit over the last, you know, five years or so. So I think a lot of that early efforts that we made, because a lot, a lot of the early members of the, of the ASFS were African authors living outside the continent. We had a few people living there as well, but our main objective was to promote the people that were living on the continent, not actually ourselves. Um, which is something we made a lot of effort towards doing. So I feel like we've been a part of that. Um, at the same time, you, meant, you, know, you mentioned the anthology, the African Futurism anthology I edited. Sure. Um, I, tr- I always try to include as many other African authors as I can. And I, I have this tendency to try to balance things out, which is represent, get people. Emerging voices from all different parts of the continent, right? I used to maintain a database for the African Speculative Fiction Society, um, a database of all the African speculative fiction that had been written. Mm. I no longer do that because it takes so much time to yeah. find everything, especially with a lot more coming out. But the good thing about doing it back then was it kind of put, um, kind of gave me an obligation to try to read as much of everything as possible wherever oh. it was coming out. So I'm I'm very happy to say, like, you know, I read early stories of people like Loklo, Tamashe, you know, Tobio Gunderon. I've, I've mentioned many of them in, like, I do, I used to do, well, I still do it, uh, like, my top 10 favorite African speculative fiction stories from each year, and I've been doing it since 2015. And if you oh. kind of go back and look at that top 10 list, um, it's, it's interesting to see, you know, how many of those names from 2015 are now, you know, having novels and collections and getting a bit more international sure. recognition? Almost, I, I feel like almost always I find people like a year or two just pick up before everyone else does. So I feel well, connected to
1: this. I, I remember, uh, I think, uh, in reading the African Futurism Anthology that at that time, most of the names in it I knew only from Jeff Ryman's profiles over a period of years. And it was always frustrating, I think probably for Jonathan, as well as myself, to read about these interesting authors from Jeff's profiles and then not able to see any of their fiction anywhere because it wasn't available. But I have another question about the African futur- African Futurism Anthology because Nedia Okorafor has been very precise and very emphatic about the difference between Afrofuturism and African Futurism. And was the African Futurism anthology an outgrowth of that distinction which she thinks, and I think she's made a very good point, uh, that Afrofuturism is a a, a term coined by a white academic, I believe, Mark Darrell. Uh, It doesn't mean it's not a thing, but it means it's not the thing that she wants to talk about. Right. Yeah, so that that anthology
2: came directly from that um, through several cross discussions between, you know, um, the publisher, Brittle Paper, which is run by um, an academic and uh, publisher, Ainehi Edoro, Dr. Ainehi. So between her and Neddy and myself, we'd had a few discussions, and the, um, Ainehi basically asked me to edit the anthology because we wanted to have, like, an example. It's one thing for Neddy to keep talking about African futurism and referencing it, but then people say, well, examples. And of course you can read Nnedi's work, but we wanted to show more examples. So we decided to do a relatively small anthology um, of selected stories with a clear objective of saying, this is what African futurism looks like. Um, And I think it was largely successful. People referenced the book um, quite a bit. It was nominated for a Locus Award, which is nice, for an an anthology with only eight stories in it.
0: yeah. To, to what extent is African fur- futurism to what extent is the fiction being written by the speculative fiction being written by uh, Africa uh, writers living on the continent in your experience aimed at the North American market and to what extent is it aimed at domestic readers because it seems to me mm-hmm. superficially at least if nothing else the money is in the North American market so it makes sense to go there. And I also imagine, though I don't know it to be true, that there's a cycle that goes, there's so much the North American market in terms of film, television, books, music, forces out at the rest of the world that it almost gets a boomerang effect and goes back to the continent as well. So I mean, how, does, how do you feel that, that would
2: I It's something I'm concerned about. Talk, I used to talk with, um, with Jeff Raymond quite a bit about this. I've noticed a bit of a change over the years, Um, if you go back 10 years ago. So the first thing I'll start with is a lot of African authors have been writing speculative fiction for a long time. Sure. It, it, It was just either the market wasn't carved out. So a lot of those stories ended up in, you know, your regular African literature or African literary magazines and it wasn't classified or like carved out and say, oh, this is speculative fiction. So it, it made it harder to find. But those people, have, they've always been there and they've always been doing it. And I read a lot of their early work. Um, I've been seeing it. And it was very much aimed at the local audience because that was the only audience. The, and I think what has happened is a combination of factors, some of that including you know, the continued success of Nedi for getting a bigger global profile, the Black Panther effect, as some people like to call it, um, where all of a sudden everybody in the world was like, "Wow, a story! You know mm-hmm. about Africans. You know using African culture as a as a starting point to tell this um, fantastical story. It can make money. That's that's interesting. You know, show us more." So a combination of that, and then the internet, uh, the wider accessibility of internet and internet technologies, allowing people to submit easier to international. Um, magazines and publishers to do virtual appearances, you know, with video conferencing yeah, and things sure. like that. So I think these three factors have made a lot of African authors on the continent shift their focus a bit outward. Mm-hmm. So I have noticed a change in in the writing, in the way it's angled, um, more towards a dual market, I would say. There's almost like this, um, there's this double consciousness of we're going to try to write both something that is recognizable to our local audience, but it's also for, you know, something that will be picked up by a Western, you know, European or North mm-hmm. American market. I've I've been mildly concerned about it, but I understand it. Um, because as you said, that's that's where the money is, right? And not just the money, but the... The logistics. Um, sure. For example, publishing in many parts of Africa is still fairly complicated. Getting books distributed is it it can be hell, literally. Um, I've worked with a few local African publishers, supported them on things, and then you know they're never able to get the book to me because yeah. the, the postal system they're using just goes nowhere, and the book gets lost somewhere in transit. So. You know, I I think we're going to, right now what we're seeing is there was very much a focus on the local market. Then people have shifted focus, you know, aiming outward to a more Western market, lack of better term. And what I'm thinking will happen is there might be a slight correction back and we end up somewhere with a good middle ground. And I'm starting to see the seeds of it because just recently, just this year alone, um, we've had announcements of two African publishers that are creating yep. their own um, SFF imprints, basically, yep. um, to publish speculative fiction, which means now they're carving out that space that didn't used to exist, right? Where the speculative authors needed to like squeeze themselves in with everyone else. Now we're getting our own space carved out, and the publishers are trying to make, um, they're trying to make that space, and then give the authors the opportunity to connect with local market and then from there expand outward. So you have Phoenix by WIDA, which is, you know is run by Neddy Kerfor, and right. another one by um, Jakana media, media called Mother. Um,
0: yeah. that's the imprint. And does that <laughs> open the door for a book like Shigidi and the brass head of a balafon to then make the full circle back to being published on the continent? Because, I mean, right now, as far as I'm aware, it's been published in North America. It's published in the the Commonwealth uh, market as well. But does that get it back into the continent as well?
2: It does because we have a a Nigerian publisher. Um, So the book is coming out in Nigeria in September, um, September 21st. So there is a publisher in Nigeria called Masobe Books who they do not have an SFF imprint per se. They publish a bit of everything, but they've published quite a lot of SFF um material in fact just this year alone um, so and they're doing a lot of work to try to get more speculative fiction published and recognized in the local market so yeah it's it's kind of made the full circle by
1: is there is there a market is there an identifiable SFF market to, in Nigeria I don't want to ask about Africa because we're talking about 50 different countries and cultures and languages and that but Nigeria seems to be, Uh, There's a lot of writers. There's a huge population. Seems to me a likely place for an actual SFF readership to get defined. Yes.
2: And I mean, Nigeria is, I think, about a quarter of Africa, you know, out of 50 something countries, a quarter of the population is in Nigeria. So it, it does make sense that, you know. Just by sheer numbers alone, we tend to drive things. It tends to be Nigeria and South Africa. Um, South Africa more from the infrastructure and history, and um, so there's. I wouldn't say that there, there is a there's a dedicated speculative fiction market yet. There is a very well-established literary market. Um, Nigeria has been known for literature. In fact, living in Malaysia, I get that comment all the time from Malaysian authors, like, why are there so many good writers from Nigeria? And I always give the answer, well, there's a lot of us. So, you know, statistically statistically speaking, some of us have to be good writers.
1: Uh, But But uh, one of the ironies of that, of course, is that you have... uh, nigerian writers wanting to be recognized in nigeria and american science fiction writers wa- wanting to be recognized in the mainstream to get out of the ghetto so to some extent you've got i'm trying to think of an example uh, of something um the old. okay surpels the old drift uh terrific novel beautifully written and mostly recognized as a mainstream novel i don't think it got a lot of traction among sff readers and and yet she seems to have made a name for herself in the literary world. That's something a lot of science fiction writers would like to do.
2: Yeah, and you're seeing a lot of it. You're seeing more and more of it now, right? People like, I mean, Carmen Maria Machado also seems to straddle that line quite well. Like Namueli Serpel herself has, you know, she's she's happy to be claimed by, you know, SFF. She She doesn't discriminate. She's very happy to receive um recognition that way. I think it's it's always exist. And I think for African authors there's like a double layer of that distinguishing. So you have the distinguishing between genre and literary fiction. And then in general, you have the distinction between literary fiction and African literature, which has frustrated me for so long. Because what is African literature anyway as a genre? You mean it's just literature written by Africans? Okay, why is that a genre? You know it's just it's just it's just literary fiction by, like anything else, you know. Um, but for a long time, that was a genre and I treated mean, that well.
1: It is. And the, I, I've had this conversation with Nnedi more than once, um, that a, a lot of African literature that gets canonized in the West looks like Western literature. And I'm thinking specifically about Cheby. Uh, of, of things follow Apart. It's a very good novel, but it reads a lot like an English novel. And I remember reading that at the same time that Grove Press was reprinting um, Amos Tutuola's novels, which are about as far removed from Things Fall Apart as you can get. And it took decades for Tutuola to get the kind of recognition that Achebe had out of the gate, it seems.
2: Yes. And I would actually argue, like people like Amos Tutuola and perhaps even, you know, Kojo Lang, who is very much under. Recognized, they they write closer to if you were going to say African literature was a distinct thing, you know, drawn from a lot of oral traditions and or African storytelling traditions, right? You know, canonized into this writing form that is actually closer to African literature than what Achebe was doing. Um, yeah, you know, Achebe was very much influenced by Western writing forms. Um, I mean, things fall apart and things like that. They've very much heavily influenced by the Western approach to writing. It must yeah. tutorialize more free form, very playful, wild conceptual ideas, wild descriptions. That's more the way you know I grew up hearing stories from my grandmother. That's the way they tell stories is things happen all over the place. It jumps around. You know, there's there's a man that turns into a goat, and then the goat does a thing and changes into a bird, and then the bird turns back to a man, and of course he gets married.
1: That's the end of the story. And don't ask weird questions because that's how. And 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 the the language is radically different too. And the one of the terms. This is a this is a piece of advice I need from you as a critic. You used the term pigeon earlier. I've seen the term uh, modified English as a way of avoiding using the word pigeon, which sounds. Like a colonialist term, frankly. But how would you describe the language in, let's say, my life in the bush of ghosts? Because it's not—it's not dialect. It's not uh, standard English, according to E.M. Forster. Uh, what is it? That is—that is—that's a great
2: question. I, to me, as a Nigerian, like we have—we have adopted the term pigeon. We fully uh, embrace it. With, okay. we, we love speaking pigeon. We use it to describe the way we. We speak when we use, you know, a mishmash of English, but, you know, some of it is stylized, some of it is broken, some of it, you know, you, you're infuse with bits and pieces of local languages. We just call it pidgin. We love it. So I'm perfectly fine with uh, with the pidgin English. I've seen some academics use the term non-standard English. I don't know. I mean, first you have to establish what standard English. That's pretty vague. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, it's... it's a, I'm perfectly fine with Virginia. Um
1: Okay, It's good because to know
2: that. because it's also not, it's also not a standardised form. That's the thing I love about it. Um, it's you. So one of my favourite stories from from last year was called The Bone Stomach by uh, Howard Jande, who's written a few novels as well. Um, she's from Liberia, from Liberia, I think. And um, it it really it really pains me that that story did not get a lot more traction in like mainstream sff circle because it's so playful with language and howard jande is from liberia i have never been to liberia i don't know the version of you know pidgin english that they speak but i i could understand the story and i absolutely loved how playful it is with the language and what it does like reading it is almost like it gives you a sense of almost being high you know it's like mm. you're reading something that's it's doing. Th- it's tickling your brain in like unusual places. Um, I love elements like that, and I don't use that much of it in my own novel in Shigidi because Shigidi is going more for, you know, a bit more standard heist form. But I absolutely love playful language like that. Um, the combination of just using English in strange new ways to me that's that's something I love in a lot of African literature, and it's something I'm seeing a bit less and less.
1: That's has. too bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's been an issue with Caribbean literature as well. And I, and some, some writers I know are a little bit sensitive about the term, but writers like uh, Tobias Backell or Nalo Hopkinson have used non-standard English dialogue and sometimes... But again, you're right. The, 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 the trick is to make it completely understandable to somebody who has no familiarity with that... Oh, patois is another word that sometimes... Yeah.
0: I ask you, Jonathan. I was going to say, do you feel like there is a cycle going on at the moment uh, where we're at a stage where writers, work at, writers from the continent, are now getting published in North American and British markets. They're getting more and more profile. They're getting nominated for major awards. And along with this process the genre readership is becoming more familiar with the kind of work people are going to do, the kind of things they're going to talk about, and that then opens up the door for more of the work that was originally maybe inward-focused on, to the continent to be read and encountered out in the world at large so that we can move from situation where a book like, say, The Year's Best African Speculative Fiction can be published and be 85% work published in North America and instead be something that is more uh, based on the continent bringing giving writers there that opportunity to have that larger readership yes however
2: there is there's there's still a core problem that needs to be addressed which is you know the the infrastructure and spread of sure the speculative fiction market on the continent itself so for example I mentioned you know how a story which appeared in Wei which is, it's a literary fiction magazine. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a dedicated speculative fiction magazine. So it falls more into that you know, old tradition of you just publishing the literary magazines because where else are you going? There is currently, as far as I'm aware, only one dedicated speculative fiction uh, magazine on the continent, and that's Omenana. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are only two dedicated SFF publishing imprints, right? That's a more than a one-man operation. Um, and I just mentioned them, right? And they're new, they, just, they both appeared this year. So I think we still need more, because a lot of the stories I'm talking about where people were publishing, they either appear in literary magazines or on like personal blogs or just, you sure. know, published free online. So I think we still need to establish a firm base. And that's kind of what I'm hoping happens, right? Um, it's, this is what I've talked to Jeff Raman about, and it's something I'm trying to make happen as well. I tend to have my hand in a lot of things behind the scenes. But what I'm trying to help make sure happens is that the local publishing scene continues to grow and is supported by the recognition from outside. And a lot of what we get from that in terms of money, profile, resources, whatever that is, hopefully cycles back to support that local Mm -hmm. industry so that we get more local publishing magazines and more um, local imprints that can then also, you know, find these find these other talents that are publishing on their own websites or whatever for free, and eventually professionalize the whole thing, and then you get an improvement across the
0: board. Right. Yeah. Let me bring this back to Shigidi, which is the, you know, where we started, and ask you this question: Once upon a time, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, and then it became Indiana Jones mm. and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. Shigiri and the Brass Head of a balafon as a title sounds an awful like it, it belongs in that space. To what extent can we look forward to seeing more of Shigiri in future capers and heist novels?
2: I will say I'm cautiously optimistic in yeah. the sense that I, I already have an idea for a sequel, right? I mentioned that the idea was to have several adventures oh. with Shigiri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there, there should be at least one more. Uh, Details of that are being finalized, but I was, you know, cautiously optimistic that, yes, there should be at least one more Shigiri and Norma adventure. Um, yep.
1: Yeah. Well, so. I noticed, uh, I went back and looked, when you were announcing the novel Shigidi. it was, the title was just Shigidi up until the beginning of this year. And my first thought was, okay, this is a franchise now. <laughs> <This> is, <laughs> it's already yes. a franchise. And it, it would work perfectly well because you've got two great characters there. But yeah. I mentioned I mentioned in the beginning that you've got a, a short story out just a couple of months ago in Lightspeed, Saturday's Song, which and Shigidi is showing up in that again, not yeah. a little bit darker in that one. I um, yes, yes, but it does explain
2: some of Shigidi's backstory.
1: Yes, it um, does
2: um, just a little bit some of his mental and, state. And, and,
1: he... um, I have to, since you've already mentioned that you like Neil Gaiman, I can't help but notice you have a story that's narrated by days of the week. And Neil has a story that's narrated by months of the year. October in the chair. Yes. That's right. And it's a great device. Um,
2: Oh, it is. It's wonderful. And the funny thing with that is, um, this is like the third story I've written with that device. The first one I wrote a long time ago. Um, It's called Thursday, and it appeared in the Kalahari Review, which is like a local African um, magazine. And it was after I had written it, and I sent it into the magazine. I was talking to a friend, like, "Oh, this is going to be published." And when I described the idea to her, she was just like, "Oh, yeah, that sounds like October in the Chair." I was like, "Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, okay." So I went out and got his um, his collection. I think it was in which one was it? Was it um, Smoke and Mirrors? No, Smoke and Mirrors. It was, it was originally
1: in a, a, a collection of Bradbury tribute stories. Um, yes. Yeah. It's but then, collect Yeah. I, I read it in his collection.
0: The yeah,
2: Smoke Mirrors, and yes. Mirrors, I think. we After won. a bit in Thursday, and then I was like, wow, okay. So it's, it's an it's an interesting idea. It's cool. It works.
1: Okay, and okay, I another, it. another quick question about that story, because, uh, and I know that I'm coming to all of this with uh, with my own background, mostly in, in, in Western culture. I did take a one credit hour course from the Open University in Yoruba culture and mythology and to be honest that was decades ago and all I remember is that that game of I O is way more complicated than I thought it was going to be but there's a description in the story of I I think Shigiri sitting on somebody's stomach crushing them and the description of the small gnarled figure looks, sounds exactly like Henry Fuseli's painting The Nightmare from about 1790 I don't know if you've seen the painting or not but it's a monstrous little creature sitting on the chest of a young woman, you know, lying back uh, in, in a swoon, and I, I actually enlarged it because I thought you've described that figure from the 1791 Swiss <laughs> painting uh, with remarkable accuracy. If you've never seen it, I have not. Okay, uh, well, uh, <laughs> <get up. laughs> Fuseli, F-U-S-E-L-I, the nightmare. I will. I will look for it
2: because yeah. actually, what. When I first published the short story with Shigidi, the one called I Shigidi, there's a piece of art that accompanied it, um, which I don't know where they got it. It looked like a reference to... Um, it, it looked like a reference to some kind of classical art. So maybe that was it. I I would need to check. Actually, I'm, I'm just right now. Oh, no, it's not. Um, no, but that's that's remarkable. No, the the description of Shigidi sitting on someone's chest literally comes from the way way in Yoruba culture, the way it's believed that Shigidi kills people when you send him to give your enemies nightmares. He would literally sit on their chest and press out their breath. Um, And that is, so I wanted to describe that. And to me, that, that has always seemed like a kind of, Uh, the kind of way that the culture explained things like sleep paralysis um, or sleep apnea, right? It's that feeling of like a weight on your chest and you can't breathe and things like that. So, yeah, that's really where that description came from. But thank you for telling me about this painting. I'm just saying,
0: (laughs) yeah. I just quickly want to ask you, as someone who has, you know, you've read science fiction for for some time, how does it feel to have a book come out from a, Real center of the genre, publisher like DAW. I mean, when I think about, it, I mean, I grew up with the yellow spine DAW books that were everywhere. And you know, I, I, I guess I spoke. I mean, Nnedi Okorafor was published here, there as well. I mean, how, how does it feel to be in that part of the genre, right in the middle of it? It's actually pretty
2: amazing. Like, you, like you said, I, I read a lot of you know science fiction books growing up as well. My dad had lots of secondhand novels, a lot of which were DAW paperbacks. I read a lot of them. So it was kind of amazing to get to work with um with Betsy on this. And to be fair to Betsy, Betsy has been great. She she had a lot of faith in in the novel, even before it was a finished novel. Um I, I will say she 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 took it she took a chance on me, a chance I don't think a lot of publishers would have. Um mm-hmm. so I, I hope it's working out. I hope it works out for her. But yeah, it's 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 been a little bit surreal. It's like Daw is you know center of the genre, spine of the genre, so to speak. And um yeah, it's slightly surreal to be honest. And also it, maybe in another sense, also one of the publishers that also took an early chance with people like Neddy, right? So Betsy has been there since um since day one, basically. I think you know it was quite funny when I met Neddy for last year again in Nigeria and I, I told her that the book was coming out, all she said was just like Oh yeah, Betsy is great. Do whatever she says. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I guess there must be a feeling, as that sort of how does it feel to have gone from being a writer on the continent to someone who's now some time away from there? You know, do you feel like you're you you are? Do you feel like there's more of a place for you in the genre that you grew up reading?
2: Yeah, I think um, I think I I feel more connected to to genre than. Anything else? Like I haven't been a big part of the community. I've never really attended any conventions or anything like that. But I did grow up reading, sure. the, as well as African literature. Um, I also grew up reading a lot of science fiction and fantasy books. More science fiction. My dad was. My dad loved this, so I used, I got a lot of secondhand books that I read there. So I've always felt attached. To Like the science fiction genre, I was aware of things like the Hugos and the Nebulas and, you know, names mm-hmm. like, you know, Niven, Parnell, Clark, um, Le Guin. These are names sure. that are so familiar to me. Um, yeah. Mary Robinette and so on. So it, it's interesting to be coming more to the center of that. Now, I think I'm still kind of on the outskirts of sure. it a little bit, but coming more to center with the novel. And hopefully with more stuff, I do have more things I'm working on. Maybe you know more of a classic science fiction novel eventually will make an appearance, but it's been an interesting experience. I will say the distance makes me still there's a bit of detachment sure. from almost everything because I'm doing almost everything remote right i yes. have, I haven't really met anyone in person, even my publisher betsy I'm doing everything um through email and you know video calls and and whatnot even my my agent i've only ever met my agent once for dinner when I was visiting Spain. So it's, there's there's a bit of detachment, everything, but at the same time, it's nice.
0: Believe it or not, based in Perth, I feel a lot of parallels, I do. Oh well, yeah. Do, do you feel like you're going to get to some of these events now? That's something that you will begin to try to incorporate if you can in this strange and complex world we live in now?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think I will make an attempt at it. I feel, I feel obligated
1: to now because, you know, well, they. I mean, this- they Give you author. <laughs> well, but and, and I I understand that China is problematic for lots of people in lots of ways, and you're nominated. We're nominated as well. So, uh, and uh, but on the other hand, I think that the place that you should show up is someplace smaller and more intimate, where a lot of your friends are, and where you'll see people like Betsy and this sort of thing. I would recommend thinking about a World Fantasy Convention uh, or, or something like that. But I think. What you both say about detachment is the other side of the coin is connection because there is a time at which uh, somebody from Nigeria living in Malaysia would have had to write letters to people and and wait weeks for them to arrive and uh, I was I was looking at some of the early histories of fandom the, the internet existed but it existed at you know one one thousandth the speed it does now and, yeah. and so to some extent. The fact that she can get nominated, I'll be a little bit surprised if Shigidi doesn't get some nominations for next year. not um, And um, as, as a fantasy, although the, no- the story you're nominated for this year actually is a science fiction. It novel. is, yes. So which
2: we haven't talked about at all.
1: We have not talked about <laughs> at all. The dream of uh, oh, okay, I'll ask you about that too because the dream of electric grandmother electric, is that? Electric, electric mothers. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Right. Which sounds to me like a Bradbury title. It's, it's more play on Philip K. Dick. Uh, okay. sheep. Uh, the reason is that Bradbury wrote a couple of stories about electric grandmothers, robot grandmothers. Yeah. And not his best stories, actually. <laughs> it's probably why I haven't. Have okay. <laughs> so, but, but, yeah, do androids dream of electric sheep is obvious. But, but it's, it's interesting because we haven't talked about really your science fiction at all. We've been talking about fantasy, about uh, Yoruba mythology, about heist capers, um, but your interest, I gather, originally was more science fiction and has yeah. morphed into fantasy?
2: Indeed, yeah. I I mean, I'm an engineer. I have a background in chemi- chemical engineering. My dad was also a chemical engineer, and he also loved science fiction. So actually, my dad was a chemical engineer. And my mom studied English literature. So, you know. Oh, if okay. You so take, if, you, if you mix the two in a bowl, you kind of get someone, you know, science fiction. All right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I grew up reading a lot of that and I loved it. And I actually think it had like science fiction had a strong influence on my decision to end up studying engineering, um, because, you know, you have the adventures and like space aliens and all this. There's a lot of unrealistic stuff that happens in classic science, but at the same time, there was very much a kind of interest in the way things worked and in describing that and describing concepts and ideas. And that got me very interested. And almost every time I read something, I would go like study. I was like, get out the encyclopedia. Does this actually work that way? Is it possible to travel faster than light? Okay, if you, what are the theories? You know, how does the universe actually work? So, as a teenager, I spent a lot of time going from science fiction novel to library or encyclopedia to like study. And eventually, it just got me interested in how the world works.
1: You must and have been I, a Ring. You must have been a Ring World fan. I was. I still am. I still am. <laughs> I have a copy. Um, (laughs) I mean, I'm not even, I never studied engineering at all, but that novel, for all its flaws in terms of characters and that sort of thing, made me wonder, how would you do this? How would you solve this problem? Yeah, and it it was that sensibility of classic science fiction that
2: I think stayed with me the most. It's just, how would this work? And that interest drove me. So um, a lot of my short fiction has been science fiction of similar conceptualization but I think the other kind of science fiction I like is the more philosophical type right the kind that's like oh it's two people in a room talking about a concept you know the classic thought experiment okay two people in a room what if the world was like this and then you just they talk about it and figure something out and then they, maybe there's maybe there's one plot twist and that's yes. it mm-hmm. like that classic style of story um so those are the two things that have made it mostly into my work. And a lot of my science fiction work has involved, you know, thinking about things like the nature of consciousness, about memory. Um, Actually, consciousness and memory would probably be the two main things that I, two main themes that I come to most often, and that's reflected in my story, "A Dream of Electric Mothers," which actually shares a world and characters with three other stories I've written. So clearly, it's something I'm interested in because I keep coming back the idea of digitizing and recording human consciousnesses. Um, So I've written three other stories in it. And in fact, one of the previous stories, The Regression Test, which appeared in FNSF back in 2017, directly inspired the title of this one, because in The Regression Test, there's a character that is discussing with a digitized, with an AI, basically, that's built based on the mind of her mother right it's this invented science that i call memoryonics which is just you know memory electronics basically um and in that I, she's having that discussion almost like a philosophical discussion trying to establish if the ai actually represents her mother closely enough she does say something like do she's questioning herself and thinking like oh, do old women dream of their electric mothers um, ah okay and that that line from that line was a direct reference to do Android Stream of Electric Sheep, and that eventually became the title of this one, which is about more a nation, you know, recording the, um, the minds of all their citizens and using them as a kind of counsel, basically to provide advice and, you know, guidance on matters of national interest. Um, so that's that's something I'm very much interested in, consciousness and memory.
1: So do we have a short story collection coming around the corner?
2: Perfect question. We do. Yes. Um, probably soon, sooner than sooner than expected because I think I'm allowed to say, yeah, it's coming out in February next year. Ah, um, So my second collection, my first collection called Incomplete Solutions came out yep. in 2019. And the second one will be called Convergence Problems. And it is coming out in February, also from Doc.
0: Oh, excellent. Congratulations. That's wonderful. And will Thank that you. overlap some of the contents or it will be most of the new work? Um, there will be about,
2: it's about 60% um, previously published stories or reprints and about 40% new
0: new work. Well, we shall have to you know keep an eye out for that. But for the moment, because we are well past our hour, yes. <laughs> giving the brass head of, of Balafon is it out in the world right now. You can buy it All across North America. You can buy it in the UK. You can buy it from your favorite online stores or whatever else. And Walla Talabi, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. It's been a genuine pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you.
1: And until we meet again, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.